Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hi, everyone. My name is Omar M. Katima, the Director of Growth at Petro Medical, and I'm very delighted and honored to be sitting with Dr. Azar Bioratz. Did yes. I pronounce that correctly? Yes, it's correct. Okay, good, good, good. I'm happy. Um, and we're coming to you from San Diego, California at the Society of Critical Care Medicine meeting. Uh, Dr. Bioratz is a professor of nephrology and medicine at the University of Florida. And uh, I'm going to defer to her to kind of expand a little bit about that on her bio and her background. Right. So why is nephrologist at Society of Critical Care Medicine? Well, I practice as intensivist. I was trained as a nephrologist. And then at the time when I finished my fellowship, um, I moved from Turkey, where the, one of the main modality for treating patients with end-stage renal disease was peritoneal dialysis. When I moved here in 1999, nobody was on peritoneal dialysis. Mm. And everybody was on hemodialysis. So I had to switch my research interest, and that's when I became interested in acute kidney injury. And after finishing nephrology fellowship, I felt that uh, as a nephrologist, I can't really understand acute kidney injury because I'm not there when people developed it. So I said, well, I gotta be there if I wanna change the disease. And I said, well, I have to be intensivist because that's where the AKI occurs the most. And that's when I decided to do another fellowship in critical care medicine. And when I finished that, uh, I stayed as a faculty in a, Department of Anesthesiology, because they managed surgical ICU at University of Florida, and I got tenured and promoted there, and then eventually transferred to nephrology, but my clinical practice remains in ICU, in intensive care unit. I do do a little bit of consulting as nephrologist, but mainly I work as an intensivist. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I always wear both hats, right? Mm -hmm. But that's my little background, why am I in ICU and why am I here at SCCM and, and why do I care about kidneys in ICU? Yeah, well, so, you know, before, you know, I definitely want to ask about that, but I'm just curious if you can kind of expand on it. You know, so my, my father happens to be a surgeon as well, and he was, uh, he was a, a foreign medical student and, and came into his residency here in the U.S. I think a lot of people don't understand the... Um, the difficulty and how what that takes to do that you know can you, can you expand and share a little about that? sure well I was um, I finished medical school in 1990 in Sarajevo uh, University of Sarajevo I went to med school when Winter Olympic Games were in Sarajevo it was still Yugoslavia then and then in 92 uh, the war in Yugoslavia started first in Croatia and then in Bosnia and I lived in the northern part of the Bosnia and escaped, thankfully, from my town, uh, and as a war refugee went to Turkey. Uh, I was intern at that time, graduated med school. So when I went to Turkey, I actually was able to start residency at the Marmara University in Istanbul. And it was really, um, you know, drew to the gracious uh, support from my mentor, who was a nephrologist, Dr. Emela Kolo. She was chairman of medicine and professor of nephrology. and. It was a very strong department uh, in medicine and nephrology, and I fell in love with nephrology, obviously. As I finished my medicine there training, it was four years in Turkey as opposed to three years here in America. And then I started nephrology fellowship, and uh, I got fellowship uh, from International Society of Nephrology to come here and study, do research. 
So I moved to Gainesville, uh, studied my research, and then um, got political asylum because I couldn't go back to Turkey, I couldn't go back to Bosnia. So uh, in order to practice medicine, I had to repeat all of my training. So I first finished nephrology fellowship, and then I went back and did internal medicine again. <laughs> and then I did critical care medicine. So when I got my first job, I was 40 years old, <laughs> and I got my first salary. <laughs> Up to that point, my family basically took care of me. So it's always funny, you know, when people talk about, you know, people who live off others under the clothes. I, you always, I always remember that, you know, if it wasn't for the, you know, for my family working and helping me, I would never be who I am, right? But you know, you never know the circumstances of your life. That's why I think sharing and supporting each other is so important, you know? Absolutely. And you, you must be very passionate about what you do because you went through it twice just to get to where you are today. So you yes. mentioned that you, you developed an interest in, in acute kidney injury. Now, in medical school and training, there's all kinds of different pathologies, right. different areas. So what was it about acute kidney injury that got you so interested? It's interesting because um, the first, you know, when this is all the coincidences of the life, the town I was born in, right? It's on the northern part of Bosnia, on the river Sava, that goes to the Danube. And that's part that is known for a disease called Balkan nephropathy. It's endemic kidney disease there. Because of, later it turns out, because it's a fungus, it's in the ground, in the water. And people will just develop shrinking kidneys. So there was a disproportional amount of people with end-stage renal disease. A lot of dialysis patients where I was born. And, uh, you know, as a medical student, we were doing field work to understand Balkan nephropathy. So it's really true. A lot of people think it's like, oh, you really lived there? Yeah, I did. And then, you know, when the, before the war started in my town, uh, a lot of doctors left. But I just started my job, so I have to stay because otherwise I would lose the job that I just got. So they made me director of dialysis, although I didn't know nothing. <laughs> so, you know, okay. And, and then in, in, in my professor in, in nephrology was very strong in Marmara University. She was very famous. There was a lot of research in peritoneal dialysis and in glomerulonephritis. It was a referral center for rare kidney diseases. And so I saw a lot of things. When I came here, acute kidney injury became so apparently important because every consult we would have was an acute kidney injury. And uh, in 2004, and I still remember that, uh, the rifle, the first consensus guidelines came out on AKI. And up to that point, only people who ended up having dialysis, you know, the most severe stage of AKI, complete failure, would consider having acute renal failure. So if you consider only them, it's only 2%. But when they published in the rifle criteria, Dr. Callum and Ronco, 2000 Belloma, I still remember that paper. I was fascinated because suddenly you understood that there is a whole spectrum, right? And from mild to moderate to severe. And uh, I mean, I was taken by that paper and wanted to understand in our own data how much, how big is the problem, right? And uh, and that's kind of also another interesting story. So, you know, it was obvious that, you know, and I look at the data and we understood that short-term outcome, it's a prevalent, the short outcomes are, you know, bad. And we did one of the first, one of the papers on that. It was one of my first publications. But then 
I became interested in long-term outcomes. Like in, a, in other words, we were thinking, well, it's not just that you end up developing this acute kidney dysfunction that affect your outcome in hospital. But perhaps even when you leave, it may affect your outcome. We hypothesize. And at that time, nobody believed in that. Nobody. This is long ago, 2007. And, and I, was, I finished nephrology. I was doing internal medicine. And my current boss, and he was one of my mentors, he was like, let's look at the long-term outcomes. But at that time, there was no electronic health record. There was no digital. Like uh, the labs, you know, we couldn't get them digital in a digital way. Right. So what we did... We could get administrative data. You could get, as example, everybody names of the patients and their ICD-9 codes, right? Now, and if you know a little bit about claim data, and uh, you can, you know that administrative code for acute kidney injury is basically code for dialysis requiring AKI. People only code AKI if somebody needs dialysis. Mm. Mild, moderate, no. Nobody mentions that. And it goes under the radar, I guess. Yeah, so it's not reported in, in, in the claims. So sensitivity of ICD-9 codes is at 20 30%. 70% of the cases are never claimed. And um, so if you want to use rifle, you need creatinine. So what we did, we got 10,000 patients. We knew who they are. We were interested in surgical patients. So said, well, let's take patients who had surgery, and let's see what happened to them. So first we're going to call them and nobody would answer. They said, well, 10,000 patients, we need their creatinines. Well, we couldn't get them digital. So this is so these are all these weird stories that exist in life. So I was, you know, fellow and uh, in a critical care, and then I just became junior faculty, and and I wanted to do this project, but, I mean, who's going to get these creatinines? And then there was a resident in internal med in anesthesia uh, who ended up being on probation for some problems he had. And they didn't know what to do for him. And he was Turkish. <laughs> now, that's funny. Like, and they knew I came from, they like, do you take care of him? <laughs> because, like, I don't know why. Why would they? Because I lived in Turkey, right? Like, funny, right? It's like, cool. Like, I said, okay, you mentor him. Here's, he's your, pro you know, do something with him. So, Sinan. I said, Sinan, we're going to go and in 10,000 records, and we're going to record manually creatinines. So he went in 10,000 records and write down creatinines in Excel sheet. Well, that's a lot of work, right? <laughs> we don't need to do this anymore, but we did it, right? So we pulled all the data, and we did, and we showed, and that paper was published in Annals of Surgery, right? And in circulation, showing that... AKI effect up to 10 years survival, up to 10 years after surgery, even among the patients who never had kidney disease. So in other words, you look at the patients who had major surgery, they never had kidney problems before, they come to hospital and after surgery develop change in creatinine. Acute dysfunction, acute decline in your filtration function because it's remote in organ dysfunction after surgery. It happens in a lot of patients for different reasons. It can be sepsis, it can be drugs, it can be hypotension during surgery. And these patients, whether or whether or not they recovered back to their baseline, did not do well. Up to 10 years after surgery, they, their survival was lower comp in, uh, compared to patients who never had a kidney problem. First time ever that somebody looked at that, and that was a paradigm change. A lot of study later, now we understand 
that it's cardiovascular mortality we showed it later, that you actually not only are less likely, not that you, not only you live shorter after AKI, 10 years after, but you are two to four times more likely to die from cardiac disease and four to 60 times more likely to develop end-stage renal disease. Mm -hmm. If you have acute dysfunction of the kidney, even if you didn't have any kidney disease before. Part of that is also the progression to chronic kidney disease. Part of that, I believe, is decline in your reserve and perhaps in endothelial health. It's all connected, but that was, you know, that's kind of one of those things, you know, Turkish people say it's called kader, you know, or kismet. You know, it's your destiny, a good one, right? You know, things come your way because they are meant to happen to you. And then, you know, the little dots came together. So that's how I became interested, like really in outcomes of surgical eye in AKI and understanding in surgery what are the, what's epidemiology, what are the outcomes, how is it associated with other complications, that we need to change definitions report in the surgical societies that report only more severe cases. So we show that, that the American College of Surgeon has a definition called NISQIP, that that definition misses a lot of cases of AKI that are not as severe but are still associated with bad outcomes. That having acute kidney injury after surgery is increases your risk for other complications like sepsis, mechanical ventilation, being in intensive care unit for a longer period of time, right? So it really brought radar for AKI, at least in my institution, like it became like kidney-centric worldview of the perioperative medicine. But if you move beyond where I work, you know, you know, it's one person mission. You, you know, you teach people. It's very, the problem is that there are not many, there are not many people like me who do both worlds, right? So you, what you have is a disconnect. The nephrologists, they don't, you see the kidney, the mild to moderate AKM. So if you, if you think about uh, all cases of acute kidney injury, either after surgery or on the ward or in ICU, in hospital. Probably the distribution of the stages, like the mild would be probably in 30 to 40 percent, and then 20 percent moderate, and then very severe would be maybe 10 to 10 percent of cases, and maybe dialysis requiring only 5 percent. So nephrology see 5 to 10 percent. They are never called before. People just don't call them for two reasons. Either they don't really recognize or they don't think it's important. So, you know, it's one of those interesting things like for what, for, and I always ask, so why would you consider, why would you consider, you know, they would say, well, you know, it's just transient, right? Uh. Well, you know, the people may be dehydrated and, and I said, well, I get dehydrated, but my creatinine doesn't double, right? Like, sure. like you know, all of us get dehydrated. All of us run. And why is it? It's not. It's a, the, the people tend to assign less value to that. Mm. I think, and they 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 still don't understand. I think physiology completely behind that. A lot of that comes also from the biases in nephrology viewpoint of AKI that the, the nephrologists themselves were those who are minimizing that, right? So the problem with reversibility, like is it reversible or is it not? If it's reversible, does it mean it's completely benign? Hmm. I, I will argue not necessarily, right? 
we still don't understand that because now we are, we are seeing by the work, the work done by Dr. Ronco that patients who appear to recover from AKI, if you test their renal reserve, I'll talk about that, they don't have the same. In another world, where it's you are born with two kidneys and you have a capacity to increase your work, your filtration, your clearance of the kidney up to almost 50 to 60% above what you operate usually. So if you operate on 100%, you can maximize to 160%. Under the stress, when you need a lot of protein and water or in a pregnancy. So we have a huge reserve, we call it the renal reserve. That's amount of the extra filtration function that exists in human kidneys that can be used. So what we now understand is as you age, that reserve shrinks. How much does it shrink by? Well, depends. You know, it depends. Not everybody is the same. Like, and so, you know, the baseline renal function, you know, the creatinine. Uh, so, so here's a, so basically, you know, vitality of the kidney declines with age, but not everybody declines at the same rate. Just like not everybody ages the same way, right? So I think every organ and the body as a whole is a slow decline. The slope is different in different people, right? So then the certain diseases obviously predispose you for much steeper decline, like hypertension and diabetes. We know that. The most common in American society. So now when you think about it, and aging has a slow decline, but some, uh, you know, in some instances, if you combine comorbidities with aging, then you get the perfect storm, right? Now you have all of these older people who might have some hypertension, no diabetes. They don't even know that. And now they are going all these procedures in hospital. And now under the stress of acute illness, that inability to be resilient comes out in every organ. And a kidney, incredibly susceptible to that. But unfortunately, it seems that with nephrologists, you're only getting to see it when it comes to that 5% when yes. the rival score, when it's already too late. Too late, exactly. So. And then, you know, and the thing is, uh, those who see before, they probably don't know as much, they don't necessarily know what to do. The nephrologists, with, you know, with all of these years of not being there, they don't either. They don't either know what to do. So there is this gap now. There is this window where we need specialists for that population. So, you know, some kind of crossroad in between uh, acute care doctor, that can be surgeon, internist, intensivist, and specialist for kidney as nephrologist. So, um, you know, and that area of the research is uh, really something that I think needs to be emphasized more and more. Take me, so you know, you gave us a wonderful view from on top of the hill what the landscape looks like and definitely a lot of things that are missing. Take us a little deeper into the valley and I guess into darker part where if these things are not addressed and nephrologists are not getting a better look earlier on of what AKI is, I mean, how does that put patients more at risk and what does medicine look like if we don't improve these So things? I'll tell you right now, let's take sepsis because that's a good disease. That's we all, disease. you know, it's the right, it's you know, top poster child, right? So the sepsis and we have new definition. It's a dysregulated response to infection. Dysregulated immune response to infection that is associated with a remote organ dysfunction. 
In other words, you're gonna get infection like pneumonia, and then suddenly your organs are gonna stop to work. Your lungs, your immune system, your kidney, your cardiovascular system, your vasculature, you're gonna become hypotensive, blood pressure low, right? So we all focus very much, and the cornerstone of the sepsis is now give fluid and antibiotics. We have no therapy for it. All we do is we give fluid, and we give antibiotics. And, and we support fluid resuscitation. Yeah, there's a whole a lot of stuff, right? So we give pressors, we try to maintain, but we don't really have some necessarily thing that can cure sepsis. We have supportive therapy. So organ dysfunction is now core, it's, it's a main part of the sepsis picture. So I'm gonna tell you like, so let's say that we have 100 patients with sepsis. 60, or 60, 60 of them will develop acute kidney injury. Okay, mm. among sixty among these hundred patients, currently mortality in hospital is in the range between sixteen and nineteen percent. Sixteen to nineteen of those will die overall in hospital. Will not make it. So let me guide you through who dies. So among hundred patients with sepsis, sixty will have acute kidney injury. For those. Patients with acute kidney injury, one third of them will reverse quickly. In the 48 hours, will be able to reverse back. Other two thirds will have persistent acute kidney injury and will not be able to come back to their baseline. In hospital deaths occur in half of everybody who has a persistent AKI, and all deaths occur in those patients. Acute so if you die, if you die of acute kidney, if you die from sepsis, you will die with acute kidney injury. Can you repeat that one more time? So half patients who develop this, they're going to be, they're going, they have a risk so of one, dying. Yes. And a one in two patient with sepsis will have AKI to simplify. One of, those, one of two from, with, with AKI will develop persistent AKI and will not come back to their baseline. And half of those with persistent will die in hospital. And those who make it out, half of them will die within a year. And at what point during this process are nephrologists are actually called in to check? How late is it? Probably when you need dialysis. And at that point it's too late. Yes. So I think, and I always emphasize that renal recovery. First of all, in the first 48 hours, half of the patients will already develop AKI. So in my opinion, you, in those who can reverse quickly within 48 hours, they have chances to make it. So our first 48 hours goal has to be ability to reverse AKI. So I'll tell you an example. So, and there are things to do, there are ways to do that, right? That are often, I think, you know, sometimes just because something is simple doesn't mean it's not valuable, right? That's very true, yeah. Right. Just because it's cheap doesn't mean it doesn't have a worth, right? You know, but we, go, we all want to be heroes, you know, but sometimes we just need to be like, you know, good workers. It's like Occam's razor, <laughs> the simplest, you know, the simplest simplistic. Yeah. So in the first 48 hours, most of the acute kidney injury will be combination of the inflammation associated vasodilation, right? And that's, we give fluid, right? In that first 48 hours of, of the sepsis, we give fluid and we give antibiotics. Often we order tests. We give the antibiotics that can be nephrotoxic, 
and we give tests that can be nephrotoxic, like contrast, right? So if we have a patient, so we don't, so if you have a, if you pay attention to this and say, huh, I have patient with early AKI or high risk for AKI. Well, this is the patient that I need to treat differently than one who doesn't. This is the patient that I don't want to give another insult, right? From insult to injury, because repetitive insults to kidney will lead to persistent injury. These are the patients that, and that's what we do now at the University of Florida, we really do this risk stratification. In other words, what we do right now is all or nothing. Like the medicine, as of now, operates as all or nothing. And you know why is that? You know, people who do everything or nothing are people who don't really know what to do in between. Right? Because, you know, we all understand when you are doing really well and when you're doing really bad. But when you're in a gray zone, we don't know who you are yet. The discrimination in the middle is very difficult. Our tools to discriminate people in a mid-range of risk is very poor, right? So we can say, well, you're doing great and you're gonna, you're not doing great. Like, between dead and alive, it's, we distinguish those. In the gray, not so much. And it seems that that's one of the big problems right now, that nephrologists don't have appropriate tools for this. It seems that... Maybe be intensivists. Right yeah. now we are in ICU. We are really bit intensivists. Nephrology is not even at the, at, at the stage right now. And I think this is the job of intensivists at this point. So, but this is not built into any guidelines you have right now. It's either... I think everybody's very good at recognizing AKI, but in terms of the... Not necessarily. Not you know. necessarily. Not necessarily in the beginning. Like, we don't really... We very well... We when they get put a lot of value on a hypotension and pulmonary function. But in the early stages of AKI, when we have maybe 20, 40, 50% or 50% increase or 60% in creatinine, we would just say, well, this is just temporary or transient. Not recognize that this, this is the time when we need to make sure that this, that this does not, that, that this increase does not persist. So first 48 hours, try to reverse AKI if you can. If you cannot, if you are now in persistent AKI, much harder. Now we have new, we need to really look into the research that will help us develop therapies for renal recovery. And I'll tell you now it's not just intensivists. This is not intensivist nephrologist because I need to say, as of now, that's another problem. Let's say that you have developed persistent AKI. It's more severe and nuanced you need renal replacement therapy. So some kind of support because your kidney doesn't filtrate and you need dialysis of CVVH. Now think about it like a ventilator, right? When you have a lung dysfunction and you need oxygen to be supported by machine, you're on a mechanical ventilation. But at the end, your goal is always to liberate from ventilator. Nobody thinks about sending you home with ventilator. I mean, very little people end up going to the facilities. However, and I think this is a big problem, right? One of the rare organ dysfunction which we, that you can live with at home is dialysis. That's true. And I'm right? seeing more of these at-home dialysis well, And not just that. Or in, you go on a center. In other words, the only chronic organ dysfunction that is currently sustainable is a kidney. Because end-stage renal disease, we have a Medicare support. People live on dialysis. Nobody lives on ventilator. People can live 10, 15 years on dialysis, go on transplant, right? 
So the only organ dysfunction that you can become, go from acute to chronic and be discharged home is dialysis. Now, now think about it. So you're going to go from acute disease to chronic. The doctors who take care of you for acute and chronic are the same doctors, right? right? You see the problem? Like, do you, th not necessarily with a bad intention, but like, you know, the, the most nephrologists are focused on chronic disease, how they manage chronic dialysis patients. That's not the same, right? You, I always say, the number one goal for management of acute kidney disease that requires dialysis in hospital because of AKI should be to get liberated from the dialysis. But that's not what we think. And that's not how we practice. Yeah, and I want to bring something up. You mentioned, you know, you've been very popular on Twitter. A lot of your slides have been very, very much uh, uh, retweeted and tweeted <laughs> about. And you had one about cognitive dissonance and cognitive uh, biases that exist. And one was the uh, Semmelweis bias, which for our listeners who don't know, Semmelweis was a physician who introduced uh, washing, washing hands early on in surgery, and he was rejected by all his peers, and they thought he, they, that he was crazy, and this wasn't accepted until 20 years later. Um, the idea of this bias that you had mentioned was to reject new evidence that contradicts an established paradigm. So do you see that happening right now, that there's new evidence that's coming out, but um, a lot of the uh, physicians who are out there, they're holding on to the way that they used to be trained and the paradigms that they're used to? Yeah, so think about it. The rifle was published in 2004. Mm -hmm. We are here 14 years later and people still don't use it. And why is that, do you think? Rifle, Aiken, KDGO, consensus guidelines by societies, nephrology, published, exist. Still there are nephrologists who don't use it. Nephrologists. Okay. I go on grounds because it, I don't, because again, it's really hard to change beliefs. And, uh, you know, and all of this epidemiologic evidence that mild to moderate AKI, even if it's transient, is associated with bad outcomes that persistent is associated. That, in, and when you go, and here's an interesting thing, like alerts, electronic alerts. As of now, you know, the problem, there are a couple of problems. The first one is to, the, to use guidelines, you need to, one value of creatinine is not enough, right? You need to use the, the consensus guidelines define AKI based on change in creatinine. So you really need to understand baseline renal function. So you need to use a little bit of brain. <laughs> you need to put some work there, right? You need to go and think about, well, what is your baseline renal function? What, is your, what do I think is your kidney health before? You need to think that, right? Okay, and you need to maybe look at the records before. A lot of people never, they don't know about that. Nobody, when you go to doctor, nobody tells you, oh, your kidney health is this. No, they're going to say, your heart looks good, right? Like, whoever tells you how your kidneys look like? Never, never. I mean, like, I can't even, rec you know, it's all about heart, unfortunately. You know, we are so focused on certain organs. And there's a cultural fixation on heart, on cancer, on brain, right? But there's hundreds of thousands of people that die from AKI. And even me, having been through medical school, I was surprised to learn about this. Why is it not, why is it not more public? Why, why are people not aware? Well, both patients and doctors don't know. So, you know, the consensus guidelines exist. You need to understand baseline renal function, then you look at the change of creatinine, and then stage people, and that's hard. 
So right now uh, we have we are working and we have developed something called electronic phenotype for acute kidney injury. Where you instead of you doing that, you will autonomously in electronic health record stage AKI. And Dr. Kellum in Pittsburgh already has that alert. And in his institution, they saw just by the fact that it's reported there, there were better outcomes. There were a slight decrease in AKI. But Dr. Wilson in Yale did study where they sent alert, they randomized doctors to send them alert on their pager saying, hey, your patient in bed two has AKI. And one group get alerts, one didn't. And then they look what happened. Guess what happened? Nothing. Because doctors who got alerts and doctors who didn't get alerts did they, the same thing. I was gonna say there was no difference. They didn't follow guidelines. When you ask them, do you follow KDGO guidelines? Of course we follow guidelines. When you look, they don't but, follow But guidelines. the actions didn't map to Of course. Knowing, act, knowing is not acting. So, you know, so, you know, it, and it's a very difficult problem. It's not just kidney. It's many other things. But here's another thing. So you're going to have when we look at the documentation, right? So if you look at the, all cases of acute kidney injury, in let's say you have 100 patients with AKI. Of those 100 patients with AKI, only 30 of them, like seven out of eight, will not have mentioning of AKI in their dishes. It will never be mentioned in their notes, never. So they're gonna leave without ever knowing that they have AKI. As a matter of fact, like stage three, that means tripling. That if you have stage three AKI, that means that you, at some point, lost 80% of your kidney function, 80%. Even among those patients, half of them never have a mentioned AKI in their discharge summary. And it's because it hasn't led to dialysis, is that, is that the This is the doctors though, that's, you know, they didn't need dialysis, so that's okay. So as long as they don't need dialysis, it's right. fine. Yeah. But they're going to later on because they're yeah, dialysis. Exactly. Point. And there's nothing to do to, to, to... So you, I mean, this is ridiculous, right? And it's not going to be reported in a national database because it's not coded. And so if it's not reported, there's no problem. There's no problem, right? And it continues. Exactly. And then you're going to leave. I mean, the data showed 80% of patients who leave with AKI never get creatinine again measured. They go to doctors. They didn't even know they had an AKI. Every episode of AKI puts you at the risk for the next episode. So next time you come, you're more likely. So you see, you can go and see these patients coming up and down and slowly go developing chronic kidney disease or dying or having heart disease because most of the time you will not end up on dialysis. You're just going to end up dying of heart disease. So it's a problem. You know, it's, a, it's an invisible disease that for some reason we have a problem assigning value to and we don't have a real owner, right? And we don't really have report as any measure of performance, right? So, um, very interesting. It's, I mean, it's fascinating, but it's also very scary. It so, is. So we went pretty, we went very deep in the in the valley of what what this can turn out. Now, I, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the the great work that you and your team has been have, have been doing, but also if you can kind of. Uh, Take us up the hill and give us a sort of a better look. Like if, if these things are addressed and they improve in terms of how they're being treated and the way that we're looking at AKI, what is what could the future look like? A, a brighter future than what it is right, right. now. Right. So so here so first, in in my opinion, first we need to in general, 
stop doing everything or nothing. No more acute or chronic. No, not just like we'll do everything. Everybody gets everything, mm-hmm. or nobody gets anything. Right? You know, like the gray has to be. Yes. Yeah. In other words, when you come with sepsis, you don't just get everything. This not everybody gets the same therapy. It makes no sense. Because not everybody's the same. Right. Because you will overtreat some people and undertreat others. Right. Totally logically, because not you don't have to go to med school though. Right, yeah. So that means you're gonna because over treating is as bad as under treating. Waste, waste, economic because we will bankrupt. First of all, second, we harm people by doing too much, clearly. But then on the other hand, we harm people when we don't do right thing what they need, right? So rather than doing too much or too little, we'll just do the right amount of things for you. So that's number one. Number two, we need to utilize what we know, right? So how do you use the knowledge that you already have, but you just don't know how to apply it? Because knowledge, having knowledge and applying knowledge are two different things. Right? Just like, in the like, you know, I know that I shouldn't eat too much and I should exercise, but do I do that? No. To the fault of myself, my self-harm, most of the humans hurt themselves, right? I mean, it's well known. The will, the power, the discipline, nada. There is nothing like that, right? So, you know, even as a doctor, you, go, you want to do all of these things, but at the end, you don't, but you're just human, right? So, so you need help. You need, le- just like you live in, and I think that's, so first of all, we collect a lot of information on patients. It's there. With the digital electronic hack- records, information is there but it's absolutely ridiculously scattered and it's overwhelming like if you ever use electronic health records there's nothing appealing in them their digitalization is amazing but as of now they are doctor hates it because as of now it's not usable to doctors in a way that would help them or augment their or facilitate there because you know it's just a big spreadsheet in front of you you're just inputting data all day that's what you are you, you are like unpaid system. data entry person all of us nurses dog that's what we do right i mean totally it's unfriendly it's based on the very old programs we all know that you're in front of the spreadsheet and you know and then I, and every time on the rounds we round we look people don't even look at that i still on my rounds have people come with a paper and they are like writing. I said, why do you have a paper? Look, here's the data. Why do you need a paper? Just look at the screen, please. Stop reading from the paper. We are still reductionists because we want to reduce because that's how we operate human. It's too complex. We have to reduce information. In some way we understand. And then they read, 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 read. You kind of, you see, read each, let's say, you said brain, lungs, and you describe parameters. And I said, okay, well, I'll just answer one simple question. Is this patient better, worse, or the same as yesterday? Uh, well, you can't answer that question. So you only can answer if they're really bad or good? Even that. Even that. Because, Why? Why do you think that's Because it's a really hard question. Right? But that aggregation, you know, the aggregation and putting things in patterns in the real time, te- in a kind of temporal way, it's a very hard thing especially in intensive care unit. So, you know, maybe, as I say, when somebody's really doing well, we can say, I think for the most of the people who are 
stable and I always tell them if you think they are the same as yesterday that means they are worse you just don't understand it yet because in ICU you only can get better if you're not getting better you are getting worse you're just not catching up the moment when you go down the rabbit hole right so that is really important and using that information electronic health records to augment your decision making in ICU is number one priority right now because as of now we can easily base as example on AKI and that's the kind of what we do we said well okay let's we have two ability we have two things we have uh, so many studies that we know what constitutes clinical risk for AKI I mean the KD go published that that says it's susceptibility and exposure it's a combination of your previous kidney health and exposure acute exposure in another words how healthy you are you are older guy who had the diabetes hypertension so your kidney health is not very good if you go in now and get sepsis and hypotension you're not going to do well you are high risk you have potential for high risk right but you could be a young guy but then you get develop horrible septic shock and you get three bad nephrotoxic drugs you get hammered but you can also develop AKI although your health was good you know so it's a really big exposure or is a combination of susceptibility and it's my let's severe exposure but still not everybody develops AKI but now we have a biomarker too now we have something that can biologically tell us so we combine two so in other words you if you use biomarker that is not perfect because it's not perfect the biological biomarkers are not perfect yet and I don't think they will ever be just one marker there's no then you need to combine them right because if I say well not everybody needs $50 $100 test not everybody needs whole genome maybe one day if it's a dollar we will have it but as of now if something costs $100 test and I have a hundred patients if I can test only 50 and got more information than testing 100 why would I test 100 right so that's what we do. We say, well, we're going to use clinical health record, electronic health records to quantify your clinical risk. So if you are low risk, if you have no susceptibility and you had no exposure, why would I test you? You are doing great. Please leave him alone, right? I mean, I don't need to convince myself that you're doing good. But if you have a high clinical risk, some of you will develop AKS someone. Now I use biomarker and biomarker if the biomarker is negative then I will still do nothing because it tells me that you had a clinical risk but biologically you are doing okay and then I'm ending up with only 25 patients on my initial hundred that really need my focused attention and those are the ones that are most complicated that need the focus attention. that's I need to focus on kidney the kidney becomes my focus now I'm gonna say hey you're gonna get creatine every 12 hours I'm gonna measure urine every hour you need Foley not other 75 but you need fall you need urinary output hourly you need ultrasound to look fluid you know you need more monitoring you will not get vancomycin you're gonna get more expensive antibiotic that doesn't hurt kidney because if I give you nephrotoxic drug you're gonna end up with the dialysis it costs thousands of dollars and you're gonna be dead like so let's save some money on what matters not on one drug you know we need to see the you have this kind of orthogonal view right you need to defocus from the short term to look in the future long term because you are not helping person to leave the hospital you are helping person to have a good life year from now right so that is the problem where the healthcare is a fragmented right so 
you have a doctor who sees 12 hours in surgery only. Then he gives you to doctor who sees seven days in ICU. And then you exit ICU, you have doctor who sees until you leave hospital. And then you have, an, you know, but nobody's seeing you a year from now. As, as I say, we should all look at you. How can I make you from year to now living fully functional life at the same quality you had before you came to this hospital? Right? That is the problem. We need that view. And for that view, we need to change paradigm of fragmented care that is not guided, that is not optimized. And this sounds like, you know, and I know that you have a, a lot of experiences with this is with regards to your deep self algorithm that this, you know, it seems like it's trending more towards like predictive health to be able to predict how a patient is, how a person is even, forget patient, one year, two years, three years from now. And you mentioned that focusing on the short term in order to have a long term view. So in the short term, you mentioned with these patients who, uh, let's say, that 25% you focus on who are, have very bad uh, kidney injury, right? You said uh, increase urine output, uh, more monitoring, etc. So you have an influx of data. Can you talk a little bit about the value of using technology to solve for that influx of data? So that way, I think physicians and nurses have this reaction to more data because they have to manually manage it. Right, exactly. So. Uh, the problem with the, the problem with data, big data in medicine as of now, is that um, it's a big problem. Big data is a big problem. In, in healthcare, you know, everybody wants to be there, but it's not as simple, right? It's not as simple as shopping on internet. That's a very, very valid point. Yes. Yes, because you know the probability of harm, you know, in the pro is higher the you know the the complexity of the problem is immense the dirtiness of the data is incredible so and the fragmentation of the data is even more ridiculous so you know i know a lot of people think about it and and you know i just live it every day you know i also have a you know i'm also in a board certified in medical informatics and you know i just my whole research was in informatics and the big data in uh, healthcare. But you know, I was you know I started when you know my hands go dirty, right? So things a lot of people don't understand this. Like you know, a lot of people say, oh, now we have all of this data, we're going to do all of these beautiful things. Well, first of all, stop there. Okay. So think about data. Where is it coming from, right? So how is data generated in medicine? So where does data, EHR data comes from, right? So it comes actually still from different places, right? So there is, let's say, just focus on the data that comes from monitors. In ICU, every patient is monitored. Vital signs. That's just fine. Blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen levels. Just take those three. So they are continuously monitored on, a, on the monitors. Those monitors record data with a very high frequency. 60 hertz, 100 hertz. They can give you like waveforms, right? That data is de-identified. doesn't have your name. It's just the numbers. The data comes from that monitor in, a, in the format that is protected by company, right? You can get it in HL7 format, the universal format, but it's too much of the data to come to the electronic health records. So electronic health records takes only some of that data. 
let's say it extracts from 60 hertz to one. So you just get one per minute. Let's say that you have 100 per minute data points, you get one per minute, but still good. You are in ICU now, and when you're at the bedside, you see waveform. Now you come, the data comes in electronic health records, but it has no name. And this is the, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So now, how does it get associated with you? How do I know now that's your data? Well, the way how it works is, as of, at least in this system, and I'm not going to name it, is that the nurse at the bedside gets a spreadsheet and she associates you with the data point and she picks up one data point and validates it. And the data in electronic health comes every 15 minutes, not every minute. So you archive every 15 minutes and you use manual validation by the bedside nurse. Is that ridiculous or what, right? It's taking an old problem and just putting a new hat on it. Like, I mean, how hard is it like to have a tag on a data and associate automatically, right? How it's not, but we have too many interests floating. And I said like healthcare market is absolutely flooded with monopoly. Like I said, like if certain devices that we use on the market free, they would never survive. Never. Like we still live in a room that has a million of wires with the beds that are like 100 pounds heavy, you can't move them. When you want to go at a patient bed, at the bed, you know, behind their bed, you need to move these beds, move the wire. It's like ridiculous. Like it's like, who wants to be in this room, right? But the market is not open. The market is not competitive market. Do you see that changing now with uh, companies like Apple and Google and Amazon and all these tech companies coming into medicine? Is that going to help? Is it going to complicate things? Or I don't know. I don't know whether they will really come in. It's not so simple, right? No. No. And, uh, you know, um, I think it will happen. I think that uh, that's, and, and I'm not sure that, uh, you know, the data as of now is not going to leave easily your institution. The ownership of the data, the people who generate the data, doctors, hospitals, patients, you know, who the data belong to, do they want to send it in some cloud? I'm not sure, right? I'm not sure that, you know, people will, people will, you know, people understand that data is very valuable. So um, the way how I, you know, I really, you know, I have a vision. I have a vision of, I mean, well, we, 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 I call that intelligent healthcare. I think what we did, we did, we, we, we learned a lot about personalized healthcare. We understand that there's a biological determin determinants of care, like we know about genome, about proteome, metabolome. We learn about that. We now learn about precision medicine. We can predict models. But I think the intelligent medicine about, about delivery of the care. Mm -hmm. How do you deliver intelligently care? Mm -hmm. Using technology to help you deliver. So, you know, I call it augmented reality of healthcare, augmented healthcare. Essentially augmenting the skills of physicians. And Everything. Patients. You're augmenting experience. 
Tell us a little bit, you know, I want to uh, touch on it, but some, some of your work came out and it was, it, it was very exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about Deep Sofa and what, what does Sofa stand for? Right, so that's one of our um, projects that we, um, we are trying to develop to use machine learning and um, to develop algorithms that can use all of this data and predict probabilities of certain events. SOFA stands for a Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score that is used in a sepsis now to quantify organ dysfunction using 13 variables. It's a very reductionist approach, you know. As you mentioned, what you know, one to four, you're going to say you're doing one, good, four, bad, but you know, it simplifies things. It's it was, manu manually done. It right? was meant to be manual. It's not done because it's manual. <laughs> Nobody on my rounds know what the SOFA is. We have to pull, pull Wikipedia all the time. Although it's in the definition, right? You know, so that's the thing. Like, all of that knowledge exists, but it's not used. So we wanted to use the same information in a in auto autonomous fashion, so the computer will pro calculate probability, display to you, and also be interpretable. In another way, it will point to you in a time where you need to pay attention to events. That something is happening there. And that's why the mortalities go up. So you go and you do your triage. Then you your skills to understand what's going on. Your exam, your visual, because as of now, there's your eyes, your feelings, your experience is unreplaceable by computer. The computer is not there. You are. Right? That's what you have. One day, maybe a computer will have that. But as of now, a human has that, and a computer does. So that's what we are trying to do. And we want to deliver that in the, in the room. And we want to deliver that to you doctor, we want to deliver that to your nurse, we want to deliver that to your caregiver and to you as a patient. We want you to see that. We want to see your trajectory. We want to see when you're green or yellow or red. Because, you know, the, I want, you know, like the patient in a current medicine is a victim. Right? That's how we see. The medicine see human as a victim of the disease. But I want to see you as a protagonist. This is your story. No story ends well if you are a victim. Very true. Right? Very true. Only those who take action and become protagonists and directors of their destiny do well. And we have never tapped in that potential of a human healing that exists in us because we heal. Without any doctors, we can heal. And we absolutely don't understand much about it. I personally think. So the power of healing that exists in your organism, in your cells, we need to tap into that. And I think number one thing is that make patient protagonists in that story. In that movie is about you. He becomes the center. He knows he cannot live in a black box. That environment has to become enlightening, telling you, questioning everything that is done to you and working together with the doctors to get better. And, you know, so that's kind of like, and I think that the, 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 the space that we are in is like indifferent, I mean, it's dehumanized, it's not, it's not human-centered, it's alienating, it's, that needs to change, right? So, and, and, and you know, maybe one day the ho your home will be your room. Maybe you don't even need to come to hospital, I don't know. Or can be so you know I just kind of like I like to think about the future you know how we can change this whole paradigm of the healing and, and medicine one day. Do you feel that um, that 
predictive technologies and algorithms, like take deep sofa for example, when better technologies come out, you help the physicians and nurses be their own protagonists, and if they can be protagonists in their own stories, they can focus more on helping the patient become a protagonist in their story rather than the victim. Absolutely. So as example, nurses are absolutely, so, if you, so, so most of the time now, healthcare providers are data entry people. Most of them, you know, there are studies showing that 80% of their time nurses are spent charting. Which is not what people want to medical. Even in ICU. Even no. in ICU. 80% of the time ICU nurses do charting. 20% direct patient care. So that means that 20% of the time you are not observed in hospital. In intensive care unit. You are unobserved. You alone. And that's another project we are working currently that not just intelligence AI. You need pervasive sensing. You need environment that senses you. 24 hours. Seven, 24 seven, the room is a part of the care delivery. The camera, the, you know, we, we have a very simple system like where we use camera, the, where the, you know, the new camera like in, and uh, like kinetics cameras. Where on, we, on the patient. On the patient with accelerometer sensor of the light and noise and I can tell you right and the paper is also in the scientific reports right now under review that the low noise level in the ICU the white noise level is three times above WHO recommendation for the healthy noise level really the light level the light level is absolutely there is no pattern like in circadian night and day it's too dim in the day and it's too light in the night the patients are constantly interrupted in the night. That's why we have a delirium in ICU. We, that's why people go crazy in hospital. You can't it, sleep. Of course. So I mean, no, how, how easy would it be to have a feedback loop that measures light levels and it's in a, um, automatically adjusts them? We on have the, it on our computer. Right, I mean, like, or the noise level. We also use VR in our interventional trial. How easy it is to give patients VR. We, they love it. Just to relax when they are stressed. So these little things that we can use can make huge impact. It's not all about this is a drug-centric, right? procedure-centric healing. It doesn't tap in your self-regenerative capacity. It doesn't tap in your mind, in your spirituality. None of this. You know, all things that have shown over time to, to right. be huge help. Of course. And guess what? We just like drugs or procedures because it was consumer-centered healthcare. Mm. It seems like you know, there's this theme that you keep, you keep mentioning and it keeps popping up where it's either acute or chronic, good or bad. And it seems like that the old way of medicine, maybe the old way of life is black and white and that where we really should be living and understanding is in this gray area that you're speaking Continue. The continuum. Continue. The health is not acute and chronic. It's only one health. Right. And you need to see it as a continuum. That makes a lot of sense. And right. Even, even an old quote that says that uh, the person who looks at another being and says that they are either a god or a monster forgets that night and day is still one. And it seems that this is the same way with medicine and patients, that it's a continuum. Exactly. So you see that, do you see the hospital or the future being these, it seems like an intelligent room or a smart room that is sensing... Every, yes, every and it never stops. It exists in your home and exists after you leave. 
Because yeah, it's a con- it's a continual. It's a continual hell. We will we will be becoming. I think we will become smarter, understanding the changes before, then acutely more intense, and then again when we leave. Right? There is no re- There is no reason that we stop watching. How is our you know, blood pressure performing, how is our heart rate in a recovery period is very important, right? Patients, even in the hospital, go from in ICU being watched, one nurse, one patient. Just get a little better, we send him to the floor where one nurse watch eight patients and some people don't get seen by four hours. Well, better be at home. <laughs> Sometimes it's even better to be home. So, you know, that kind of gap you know, we, have, we don't have a good transitions and we don't have this big view from above. And, uh, you know, the, I think that will require like restructuring our understanding, the fragmentation of the medi- medical care on every level, on a data level, on a monitoring level, on a health delivery level, on a workforce level. The fragmentation is the problem. I, I, absolutely. In it. It seems, you know, this concept that you mentioned about making the patient instead of the victim to, to see themselves as a protagonist in the story, I think is a very powerful narrative. Do you see that, you know, with a lot of these consumer tech companies, they're coming up with wearables and stuff that if they do it the right way, they can educate the population to be that protagonist and take more charge of the health. Absolutely. We've seen it with web, I guess the internet and WebMD that patients are more educated when they go see their doctor. How do we continue to close that loop so it becomes more of a continuum? That's a great question. I think it's really important. I think we need to open the box, the black box of hospital care, right? And uh, continue to educate patients, you know? Uh, I mean, medicine is a privilege. Being a doctor is a privilege. And um, it's challenging profession, no question about that. And I think that uh, you know, with the regular, you know, we, we, we try to, you know, we try to control quality by punishing errors, not by fixing them, right? You know, you know, you, you know, impose more and more, like, if you don't perform this, you're going to do this, if you don't perform, like, it's, it's a punitive. And I'm not sure that's the best way to do that, right? I think empowering from inside both doctors and patients, it's probably a better way to do that. And uh, I don't know, it's an interesting concept. You know, I, I, I'm not no, by no means healthcare reform specialist or anything, but I, I live in it. I see how, um, you know, how hard it is for both doctors and patients. And I always tell my patients, be loud, stand for yourself, speak for yourself. Patients have power. But they often don't use it, you know, because they are also in this kind of conservative environment where the, whatever doctor says, that's what it is, right? And that's nice. It's nice to trust. But I don't want to, I, I think that kind of paternalistic way of, is something that we need to step away from. They have to, they have to be the protagonist. Exactly. They have to stand on their own two feet and yes. see. Maybe they need to look at the doctors and nurses in the hospital as tools rather than the heroes and heroines to help. Exactly. Them. That's a very interesting concept. So I, Partners. They are all partners. partners. That's how I see that. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, um, yeah, I mean, we see that even in a, 
in a gender distribution, like in a medicine, like that, that kind of old way of paternalistic medicine. It's very hard to abandon, you know, but slowly with the, in the influx of the women and, you know, people, you know, necessarily carry that image, you know, of male culture. It's changing. They say that the hand that erases is the only hand that can write the truth. So what does medicine have to look in its current history and current culture to erase so we can start writing the truth? Oh, that's a great question, right? Um, I think that, um, hmm, I gotta think about it. No, that's okay. Yeah. I think it first needs to admit vulnerability, right? I mean, it has to admit that sometimes there is nothing to be done and it's okay to say that. I think it also has to admit that it is not mechanistic delivery of drugs or procedure. It is, it is healing. It is about healing. It's about human connection, right? Most of the time, we are all going to die as of now. You know, maybe, you know, maybe we'll live 200 years, 300 years. I don't think we will be immortal, but you know, we will die. So I think the medicine needs to embrace death first in this society. And also embrace that often, instead of preparing for death, we are just trying to run away from that. And we hurt each other even more, right? You know? So we don't optimize dying at all, as of now. At all. And I don't think we can optimize healing if we don't optimize dying. They are all connected, right? It's all a continuum. It's a continuum. It's a life, right? So um, I also think that we, rather than being reactive, that we only react to events, we become proactive. So we start thinking about our health when we get born, right? And we very much invest in a health span concept, starting with the young people, providing them, because that's when we, we can, longevity will start when you are healthy, not when you're sick. Then you're all in the reactive mode. But there is no money to be made in the, current, in the current concept of the healthcare. There is no money to be made in preventive medicine. Probably we will say, well, if you prevent everything, then there will be no medicine. But who cares? It's not about money at some point. I think that is another hard concept, right? Do you think it's possible where maybe the new paradigm is instead of treating the disease, it's helping people to optimize this continuum of life and health, perhaps? Yes, but you know, and I think that uh, the question comes like, you know, is the health privilege or is it a right? Yeah, you know, it comes all the time. Having a healthy life, I believe it's a right, but it's also a responsibility. Because nobody's going to give it to you. You're going to work for that yourself. And I, I guess like the, the, a big theme about this is 
as you mentioned before, about being the protagonist, is yes. taking responsibility for it. Yes, and the doctors, and we need to educate patients about that even more, and start very young. And maybe part of the education is, it seems, uh, at least from what you're telling me, it's, it's empowerment, right? Exactly, so. exactly. And I think that's where technology can play a huge role. I think people more and more now understand that, like exercise and all the self-monitoring, you know, the variables, the diets, you know, the whole plant-based diets, you know, like the things are starting to vibrate in the mind, you know, and it's a different generation and it's fantastic and this generation needs to step up and kind of look for new paradigms it's not going to be your dad and your mom's and it shouldn't be they need to ask you need we need to ask more that's a lot <laughs> well i i have to say it was it was an honor and a privilege to thank speak. you it was very very uh insightful and I think you gave us all a lot to think about so doctor thank you so much now real quick um, I know that people are going to ask so I, I have to ask how can people best you know find you are you know I believe you have a Twitter handle how, how can people can you know follow you online yeah you can follow me on Twitter and I constantly want to write more and like I have this blog called kidney love kidney <laughs> love, kidney kidney love. How, do, how do we find it uh, I don't know I still it's still not very active but I'll figure it out uh, and I'll let you know and uh, you know because I think about these things a lot right I mean even on a personal level right I'm really interested in that and um, you know there are many fascinating things coming our way What's, what, fa what is kind of almost amazing to me is that not a lot of doctors are interested in, well, in health and wellness. Mm. And all these new crazy ideas that are over somewhere there and they're amazing, right? So there are some amazing ideas among people who are not doctors and there are good ideas that we need to put those two worlds together. And that's what I like to do. And I also like to give wisdom pearls. <laughs> About life and love. <laughs> we love those kind of things. What's what's your Twitter handle? So Azra Bihorak. And can you spell that for us? A Z R A B I H O R A C. Perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes. Doctor, thank you so much thank for you. joining. Thank you. Thanks.